Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome back to episode four of Going Deeper. AJ Venegas here. I'm the director of Life Groups and Discipleship here at Three Crosses. Today, we're going over 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. With that, let's go deeper. We're sitting here today again with Pastor Danny Strange. Danny, welcome back for episode four. Thanks for having me back. I do want to point out, even before we dive in, two things that our audience needs to understand. And the first one is that congratulations are due to AJ Venegas, who you may have just noticed his title changed, Director of Life Groups and Discipleship. AJ's picked up some more responsibilities around our discipleship track and programming and has been working on that stuff the last couple of weeks. And so congrats, AJ for the new title and the new responsibilities here at the thank church. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. And the second is that just a reminder to tune in next week because AJ is preaching on Sunday <laughs> and I will be interviewing him. And so be nice to me today because with the measure you give, it will be given unto you <laughs> next week. Yep, the tables will be turning. But today we got First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. So I want to read it real quick because it's short enough to be able to read. So here it is. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all the glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So Pastor Danny, we're going to start off with uh, verse 22 here, the very first verse of the section. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth. I want to pause there because immediately if you're reading this and you've been sort of a um, Christian for a long time, you might have looked at you have purified yourselves and said, wait a minute, isn't God the one responsible for this purification process in my life? What is it saying that I have purified myself? And so this is the first question because I think this is the basis for the section. What does Peter mean by purifying yourselves, by obeying the truth? Because it seems to be a crucial lead-in into this fourth imperative, love one another. So I want to be clear for our listeners, what does it mean to have purified yourselves? Yeah, that, it's funny when you look at this verse, this question you're bringing up of, okay, whose responsibility is it for the purification of our souls is a question that I believe that Peter is very mindful of as he writes this sentence. And you can see that as you read the words, just the combination of things where there's our own effort, there's God's responsibility, there are things happening to us, and then there's an imperative, a command for us to do something. So I feel like if you read this whole sentence, you see that all of those different things are true simultaneously. There's this idea that we've purified ourselves. We've done something that has caused the purification of our souls. And yet he says, okay, here's what you did. You obeyed the truth. So there's something outside of you that was revealed to you that somehow you came into obedience towards, which resulted in the purification of yourself. So even there it's, okay, you didn't do it. God did it to you when you obeyed something that he had presented to you. And then we see right after that for a sincere brotherly love or a sincere love for one another, there was a result that this love just kind of happened in you because 
you purified yourself by obeying something outside of you. And now there's this command, so love one another. And so you kind of see the gymnastics here where there's so many things happening all at once. We have a responsibility. God has a truth that he has revealed. We chose to obey it, but he transformed us by his own power. We received love within us, but we're commanded to love outside of us. And so I really think we should be mindful that all of these things are true simultaneously, that God obviously is the initiator of all things. His grace is what saves us. He does the work of purification. And yet we as humans, we have a response. Sometimes we respond to what has happened to us. Sometimes we respond to the truth presented to us. But even the purification of our souls that God did happened as a result of us entering into this covenant relationship with him by obeying the truth of the gospel that Peter says in just a few verses, this is the word that was preached to you. When I think about this question, I think about the conversations around just this phrase because, you know, there's been conversation regarding First Peter as sort of a baptismal liturgy, which would be like that immediate obedient act. But uh, scholars kind of like back away from that and saying like, hey, but it's by faith alone. So then another thing is like this passive, holy new birth concept that we've been talking about. And so like there's this back and forth tension of like our responsibility and God's responsibility and all this. And then another way we can talk about this is looking toward other scriptures that kind of talk about the same concepts. So I have here James 4, uh, verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. This concept of purifying yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love is sort of the basis for this next imperative, love one another deeply. And so this is the basis for my skeptical question of the episode here, uh, because if you've been following Peter's imperatives, we have things like set our hope in a future. We have things like be holy. We have things like live in a certain way. And all of these things can be seen sort of as like self-improvement activities. It doesn't really involve anybody. I can sit at home and learn how to set my hope on something or be holy or live in a certain way. In this one, Paul is now encouraging us to love one another, which is difficult because it involves other people. And so my question to you, as a skeptic, why do I have to involve other people in Christianity? Why can't it just be this self-improvement faith that I have? I love that Peter starts it with the concept of something that has happened to us, right? You've obeyed the truth into this a sincere, unhypocritical brotherly love. And so it starts with this idea of, of transformation, that like we talked about before, there's a cooperative effort between the grace of God and our response to the grace of God, where now he's created in us this heart, this pure heart, where without hypocrisy, we have a love for the brothers and sisters in Christ that he has given to us. It's almost like our eyes open and we see the church family differently. Right. So for your skeptic, who maybe a skeptic is outside the faith, right, who's saying, well, how come Christians have to love other people? The first thing you'd have to say to the skeptic is, well, Peter actually presupposes that you've experienced the grace of God. And as a result, you look around and you have this love for people that you didn't have before. And so I might tell the skeptic, hey, well, actually, you love other people kind of because you want to, because God has given you this affection for the people in our community. And so the command to love one another deeply, let's not forget the foundation of that command is because you have this love in your heart towards everyone. And so what do you do with the love? You love it, right? It's, it's really just a fruit, in a sense, of something that's already transformed in you. So start with this foundation of love and you do, what do I do with this love? 
Well, go love people with this love. And so it starts with a love that God has already gifted to you through the purification that happened in your obedience to the gospel. The natural follow-up question to this would be, you know, our culture throws around this term love all the time. I think you touched on this on your Sunday sermon a little bit. What does love mean here? Because I know you throw out love in our culture in the East Bay, and it could mean something way different to somebody else than what we mean here in the church or even on this podcast. So could you dive a little bit deeper into what exactly is the definition of love? Yeah, that's it's interesting because in the Greek language, you may have uh, studied this before, there's several different words that we translate love into our English scriptures, right? So we have agape, is this sacrificial giving love. You've got Philadelphia that a lot of times is translated brotherly love. We have storge, which is this charitable love. We have eros, which is this romantic or erotic love. And all of these words, we just translate in the New Testament English, love. So I was wondering as I was looking at the text this week, I wonder what it would have been like to be in Peter's audience, because we hear this, for a sincere brotherly love, now love one another. We hear love, 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 love over and over again. They hear two different words. They hear, you've received this Philadelphia, now agape. And I wonder if they'd even have that connection of like love and then a different kind of love. Probably, right? We think of Jesus and uh, Peter talking in John 21, right? Like, like, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Agape, agape, phileo. Um, And so Peter's kind of maybe again, picking up off of this motif that he experienced with Jesus to say, listen, it starts with Philadelphia and moves towards agape. I don't even know if that answers your question about our culture, but I do think what we need to lay down first is we do use love in a lot of different ways, but so did they in first century. They just had different words for it. We have the same word for it, right? So we might say, I love ice cream. I love my wife, right? I love Jesus. I love the marginalized in our community. I mean four or five different things, but I use the same word. They also had a lot of different meanings for love. They just use four or five different words for it. And so the nice thing about reading New Testament Greek is you can pick up on the nuance of what they mean by love in this instance by looking at the actual Greek word they use that we translate love. And so when we look at this text, he says that because of your obedience to the truth, purification has happened and you have this unhypocritical Philadelphia. So this this sincere brotherly love, filial love for the brothers and sisters you have in Christ. It's like this, wow, we're family and it's real and there's no pretense. It's awesome. He says, what do I do with that? You actively love people. You pursue them in love the way that Jesus calls you to love people. So start from this foundation of one type of love and now add to it this this different type of love that, yes, is a lot easier in Greek because they have different words for it. And so I, I would say that's probably how we deal with that in our own culture. We have to parse it ourselves because, yeah, we throw around the word love and we mean a lot of things. They just threw around a lot of words to mean a lot of different things. What stood out to me, which you may have been recognizing a pattern in these podcasts, is what Peter doesn't say here because, I mean, he's, again, one of the closest disciples to Jesus. And he could have easily thrown in like a love teaching here from Jesus, and yet it it's absent. And so that's kind of an interesting uh tension to wrestle with and looking into the Greek language and figuring out what kind of love. But also, as we're trying to dive into what that would have meant for the first century church, thinking about like what that call to love looked like, because um, 
any church history book will tell you they were seen as sort of like these love feasts and the culture was like, what is going on with these things? Um, a lot of them were working class, so they met at night. And so there was something secretive about these night meetings where all of a sudden they're called to drink the body and blood. And now we're starting to get in a little bit of like weird cannibalism stuff. And people thought they were having orgies and like threatening the Pax Romana of like Caesar is Lord saying, no, this this Jesus Christ is Lord. And they were even called atheists um, because of... Uh, their deity, their their God was singular, and they were worshiping them rather than the other gods. So, like this call to love was difficult at mm. the time, and I think that's so fascinating to think about. Um, the love, the call to love, is a difficult thing to do in our culture, and so that kind of leads into the next question, which comes from verse twenty three: For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And so upon first glance, you might have seen this sort of verse talking about like spiritual growth, talking about like, again, personal betterment because you've been born of this new enduring word. But Peter aligns it again with love, this concept of love. So I'm wondering if you can explain, Pastor Danny, um, why does he appeal now to this born again concept that we've been talking about, this theme um, here in terms of talking about how we love one another? Yeah, I, I can't help but think about, I don't know if this is what he intends, but we talked a few weeks back just of how Peter oftentimes borrows experiences that he had with Jesus and they show up in his writings. And so I think of that, I mentioned it just a moment ago, but the restoration of Peter in John 21, where Jesus meets him with this same restorative type of language of Peter right? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Right? And he gets to that Philadelphia. And that's all Peter has at that moment. It's like, yes, I, Jesus, I love you like a brother. He's like, all right, now go, right? Feed my lambs. Um, and so this idea of this, something is, Jesus is purifying him in his own heart so that he has this pure but brotherly love. And now Jesus gives you the command, now go and love with it. And so I feel like from Peter, that was his rock bottom moment. Then now he almost has this new life on the other side of, okay, it all started with a Philadelphia, that this brotherly love that came from trusting Jesus. I did have that and I built on that and I built love on that. And so I feel like he's kind of borrowing that concept and turning us into this corner of, hey, you've had an experience now too, where you've had a new birth in Jesus. So you obeyed the truth. You became a Christian. This new life from above, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, came into your life. And now you've got this sincere love. What do I do with it? I love one another deeply with that love. And so I think he's just taking this concept that this seed was planted in you, this imperishable seed that will grow into eternal life. And here's the starting point. You've got love. Now go love with that love and start this pathway because something new has been born in you that will never fade away. This concept of love almost creating this culture um, of just reciprocal love that just endures is something that caught my attention Um you know, thinking again about stepping into the shoes of the first century church. Um, I see this kind of statement as undermining the Greek culture. Um, they had a thing called what's called the Logos Spermatikos, which Logos being word and Spermatikos being like seminal primary reason that permeates the universe. And so Peter's using spora, like the seed language and the word. So he's like undermining Greek culture at the same time, undermining the kingdom of Rome, really, because he's saying like, 
hey, with all this Roman Empire stuff that is like, seems so firm, seems so powerful, even eternal at some points, it fades. And so I wonder sometimes if this loving culture of the church is this entity that sort of undermines this Greek culture and Roman kingdom that um, is sort of like establishing this alternative lifestyle in the first century. Yeah, from the midst of this cultural moment where you feel like, again, lost and lonely alone in this foreign place, this new birth happened to you right in the midst of this life here. Mm. And I love what you brought up with this Logos What's it called? Logos sperma, sperma, spermaticus, spermaticus. You know this this idea of seed or spermatos in the Greek language is like you said, seminal. Is this idea of this is how we are born, right? Physical birth yeah. happens through sperm and egg, right? And so part of Peter's motif of new life from above, and we're being born from above, that fits into that narrative as well. Of in the midst of this culture that believes that there's this seminal reason for being that we find out, right? John says, Jesus is the Logos. Peter says, the life that emerged in you was the seed planted of the gospel. And you've been born into this new life in the midst of this life here and now. Going along with this concept of things that are unfading, Peter then quotes an Old Testament quote. He says, for all people are like grass and all the glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is a quotation from Isaiah 40, which has some ramifications that I'll let you talk about, but I want to read Isaiah 40 for those who may not be near a Bible that might be listening in their car or doing dishes, whatever chore you're doing right now. I just love to read scripture over you. So Isaiah 40 says this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Quick note, that's Mark 1 verse 3, which is actually an introduction to Jesus, but we'll continue. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then here comes our quote from Peter. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And so it's no coincidence that Peter quotes Isaiah 40 here. I know there's a lot of stuff going in Isaiah that kind of transforms our thinking about what Peter is trying to get us to think about this situation. So could you explain a little bit why Peter goes into Isaiah 40 here? Yeah, I'm super thankful that you mentioned the Mark, Mark chapter one or Mark chapter three. Yeah, Mark chapter one, verse three. Mark one, three motif with this because a lot of us recognize Isaiah 40 from the introduction of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. And and what is great about that in this moment right now is that all of us, I think, can internalize the emotion and experience the emotion 
that the people would have felt in Mark chapter one, this idea of like, it's been 400 years of silence. We're lost and wandering in the wilderness in a sense, like where is God? And then you find out, right? John the Baptist emerges. He's the voice, the prophesied voice that would come to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus is coming. We are not lost after all. God's plan is true. This covenant is faithful. This is going to be amazing. Jesus is here, right? And so we study these things at Christmas and we think of how amazing it is that God is faithful to his promises. This is covenant language, Isaiah 40, right? And Peter is using it again to say, okay, in the same way, right? We understand that was true when Jesus emerged. He's linking the same passage with what happened in you, almost as an individual, when this word, this seed was planted in you. And so really we take this emotion of how amazing it was that God's faithful to his promises in the sending of his Messiah. And Peter kind of recapitulates that and says, and God is faithful to his promises because now you are not merely still part of that covenant promise, but you in your life, that seed has been planted in you. And so you're looking forward to this eternal life. You are in these last times looking towards eternity And all of these promises that God has always made throughout eternity is not even merely true of Jesus when he walked the earth, but it's still true and he's still renewing his covenant and he's doing it in your heart and soul as the gospel takes root and grows you towards eternity as well. And so it's a reminder that we are in these covenant promises of God in the same way that even the Messiah was part of fulfilling this covenant promise of God in an even greater way. And so it's supposed to just give us this, wow, I'm part of that narrative in this lost and foreign and faraway place. Yes, you, even you, are being grafted in this narrative that Jesus brought when he walked the earth as well. The passage closed. This is the word, the thing that we just read. This is the word that was preached to you which is an interesting transition because uh, you would expect him to word, use the word logos, but he says rema, which actually sort of means saying. And so we can assume that this was like a saying that was kind of tossed back and forth to people during this time. And so this was the saying that was preached to you. So as a wrap up to this episode, I want to ask if you could think about this saying that, that the grass withers, you know, things fade. And use that as a conclusion to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've gone through four episodes now. We've gone through one chapter of 1 Peter. What's your overall impression so far? And why is this Isaiah 40 small quote so encapsulating of what Mm. Peter's trying to do here? And the Isaiah 40 quote is brilliant because it does two things that Peter does throughout the entire chapter. One, it grounds us in a reality that's bigger and better than our current reality in this lost and lonely place. And two it opens the door for this new world of exploration that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And what I mean by both of those is one, Peter just keeps taking things they already know and he links them to it, right? This is the word that was preached to you. Remember, that's the gospel. In the last chapter he talked about, or the last section he talked about, through Jesus you believe in God, so your faith and hope are in God, right? He links your faith into God himself. He's just linking us, like putting all these tethers, like rock climbers, like putting those little like handholds so that we have something to hold on to in this world. All the things that we've heard and believe is it's true and it's deep and it's amazing and it's the gospel and it's God's promise and it's the covenant and you're okay and you're doing good and you're going to be fine and you can last in this place. It's amazing, right? So we have all of these tethers, but at the same time, there's this new door that opens because normally when you hear the promise that the grass withers, the flowers fall, like in Isaiah 40, the deeds of humans, right? Just it all... 
it's almost like this Ecclesiastes, I don't even matter, right? In the grand scheme of things, God is doing his thing and I'm just this small pawn. What does my life really matter? He's got a bigger plan than little old me. But in Peter, he links this concept with little old me and says, this is the word that was planted in you. And so even though you are a person who's a very small part on God's redemptive timeline, we all are like chaff, right? Like, like we blow away in the wind. He says, but there's something that's been planted in you that will not blow away, that will not fade. He says this so many times in chapter one, all these, we've talked about these adjectives that are like negated by the letter A that starts, right? Like Mm -hmm. unfading, imperishable, all these words, like there's something that's planted in you that will last the test of time. And you can cultivate this now. You can see its effects. You're becoming purified. You have this love that's growing and you can walk in these ways and actually build a character and a life and an impact that does last forever and ever and ever. So even though we are small, we are tiny, we are insignificant, the hope that we have, the seed that was planted in us, the gospel that is true, the character and quality of our life that God is refining through our lives and our experiences with Jesus, all of that are things that will last forever and ever and ever. So we kind of move from a reading of Isaiah 40 that humbles us merely to a reading of Isaiah 40 that humbles us and energizes us to live a life on purpose because our lives do matter because something real and imperishable is planted inside of us. We've mentioned a lot of themes in this podcast so far, and one of them that stands out is that covenant love that has said that in his great mercy, all this was done. And, you know, thinking that's like the story of the Bible is like in our hopelessness, God comes to us, brings us hope, uh, whether that's Abraham, whether that's uh, the Babylonian exile, whether that's, you know, the the period of silence that leads up to Jesus. It's he's always coming through and that's imperishable. That's a promise that we can hold on to. And so next episode, we're going to be, like you said, uh, switching roles here. So be sure to tune into that. And uh, Pastor Danny, thanks for taking us deeper. Thanks for having me.